On April 6, 2022, the Cleveland Council on World Affairs hosted CBS Sunday Morning correspondent David Pogue to discuss his book, How to Prepare for Climate Change. Please enjoy the forum. Thank you so much, Carter. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Thank you, Carter. So let's do a, just a spinach in the teeth check real quick. Anyway, thank you for coming tonight. Uh, it's really great to be back, my old, back in my old room, in my old house, and very cool to be here when my parents are sitting in the front row. Uh, they will be checking for spinach in my teeth. So uh, the book is 620 pages long. Uh, it comes with a hand truck to carry it back to your car. Um, and the, the council is very uh, rigid and inflexible on their maximum talk limit of seven hours. So I have boiled down the good stuff from this book into a much shorter talk. Uh, so this is how to prepare for climate change, the talk. So the book was inspired by a quote from John Holdren. He was uh, Barack Obama's chief science advisor. And he once told the New York Times, when it comes to climate change, we have three choices. There's mitigation, which is the stuff you hear about. Fly less, eat less red meat, dry, drive less, try to make your carbon footprint smaller. Adaptation and suffering. We're going to do some of each. The question is how much each is going to be. So you hear all the time about mitigation. That seems to be the number one approach to the climate crisis. You never hear about adaptation. These are all the books I found on Amazon right now having to do with mitigation, how to stop putting more gases into the atmosphere. There are a lot of them, and you already know what's in most of these books. I could only find one book on adaptation, and it's mine. So adaptation is the second part of Holdren's formula. It's one of the two ways that we can deal with the climate crisis. And it's funny because the, the word adaptation means a lot to governments and industry. So governments can build seawalls. They can develop new seeds that grow better in dry climates. But what about individuals? What about families? What about couples? There's nothing telling us how to prepare for climate change. Adaptation means coping. It means being more resilient to the changes that have already occurred and are occurring now. You're not going to build a seawall this weekend, right? So what can you do to protect your house and your family and yourself? So this talk is roughly going to be in two parts. There's going to be a depressing part. And then after that is a shakily reassuring part. Um, I, I apologize for the really bad Photoshop job there. Oops, sorry, uh, on the masks there. Uh, I, I tried to Google depressing and shakily reassuring masks. And I don't know if you've ever done a Google search that gives you no results. That's what it looks like. <laughs> so just a quick refresher in how climate change comes about. Uh, the greenhouse effect means the sun rays hit the earth, warms the surface of the earth, some of the heat bounces off in the form of infrared radiation, gets trapped in part, reflected off this blanket of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide, methane, and water vapor. This is all completely normal, and it is desirable. Because if it weren't for this blanket of gases, we would be a frozen ice ball, and this talk would be canceled. Uh, there would be nobody living on this earth. The only issue is what's happened since the 1800s when the Industrial Revolution happened. We started burning coal and oil. That blanket has gotten thicker. 
So as the blanket gets thicker, more of the heat bounces off the, cur the curtain and bounces back to the ground. Uh, they call it the greenhouse effect. Um, I'm not a fan of that term. I think most Americans have no idea what that even means. It, it is the same thing. Sunlight enters the greenhouse, strikes the surfaces inside. Some of the energy bounces off as infrared radiation and can't get out through the glass. So the whole place heats up. It's, it's 20 degrees warmer inside a greenhouse than outside. The average American has never been in a greenhouse. They don't know what they're talking about. I think if we want to speak to the people, we call it the dog in the car effect. Now that'll get their attention. It's exactly the same thing. Sunlight comes in through the windows, heats up the upholstery, heat can't get out, locked by the windows, we're the dog. So uh, this is a, a graph of carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere for the last 400,000 years. As you'll see, Greenhouse gases spike every 100,000 years. That's completely normal, traditional, it's always happened. The only weird thing is the line at the far right. That's now, that's since the Industrial Revolution. It has never gone up this fast, this high, in any time during human history, anyway. Um, they measure that here again, I don't think scientists are doing anyone any favors by referring to the units of that graph as parts per million Parts of what? Parts of the elephant? I, what does that even mean? When I researched the book, I discovered what parts are. You know what they are? Molecules. Molecules out of every million molecules in the air. How hard could that be to say? People would understand a lot better what that means. So we're now at about 420 out of every mil million molecules are carbon dioxide. And you might be like, well, that's not very much compared to a million. Well, one drop of strychnine in your drinking water is not very much. See how you like it. Um, <coughs> so if we zoom in at the far right of that graph, we'll see this is from 1880 to now. This is that spike of carbon dioxide. And what's interesting is if you overlay the global temperature on that graph, you'll see there's an incredible match to the curve and the slope of that line. That's why scientists think the carbon dioxide buildup has something to do with the changing climate. Um, we are currently pumping out 150 million tons of greenhouse gases a day into the atmosphere. That's a lot. And this graph shows you the breakdown. Most of it is transportation, a third of it almost. And that's why they talk about trying to decarbonize by switching to electric cars and trucks um, and ships and airplanes eventually. So if we can get rid of burning fuel, we will stop pumping more of this stuff into the atmosphere. Um, you know, industry and, uh, and energy generation and cattle, 10% of it is cattle. And you might wonder, what, what do my hamburgers have to do with climate change? An unbelievably lot. Uh, it turns out that cattle, they eat grasses and grains, and forgive me, they belch out methane. 12 gallons of methane per cow per hour. They are methane factories. Methane, for your records, is just like carbon dioxide, but 80 times worse as a greenhouse gas. It traps heat 80 times. If you have to worry about anything, worry about methane, also known as natural gas, by the way. So that is why you might hear a president say, we're, we're starting a new program to seal pipelines from methane leaks. Methane is bad, bad stuff, and we have 300 million cows. 
belching it out every day. It's a disastrous problem. So if you can go from eating red meat four days a week to two days a week, and we all do that, that's a big, that's a big change. Anyway, uh, I, uh, here's another term I don't like, global warming. I think that's also really misleading. Look at this picture of, of Texas one year ago. Does that look like warming to you? This is this freak blizzard snowstorm in Austin. You guys, they don't even own winter jackets in Austin. They don't have salt trucks. They don't have snow plows. They don't have them because it doesn't snow there. This was a freak event. This would have come as a surprise to this guy. Uh, this was the senator who brought a snowball into Congress a few years ago and said, don't tell me the planet's warming. Look at this. This is not going to be a political talk. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, the, the global warming means heat waves and freak cold waves. It means horrible flooding and dramatic water shortages. It means droughts and freak intense rains and wildfires and hurricanes, biodiversity loss, infectious insects, crop loss, migration as parts of the world become unli unlivable. You can't grow stuff in Syria or wherever. You have to go where you can live. So it means more people moving into more areas. One of the experts I interviewed for this book said, jokingly, sort of, uh, we're going to wind up building that wall on the southern border of the United States because people from South America are going to need to stay alive, and they're not going to be able to do it in South America. Um, and also some weird tertiary effects, secondary and tertiary effects, you might not immediately trace to changing weather patterns, but you know Tornado Alley, that strip of, of largely empty plain states? That alley has shifted eastward with the changing climate into much more populous, densely populated states where they're killing more people. Um, smaller beaches, more expensive chocolate, more kidney stones, smaller goats, and uh, wow, this one freaked them out at Shaker High today. Lower PSAT scores. <laughs> they put down their phones. What? So nature is a network of interconnected systems. You can't turn a big knob and expect anything to stay the same. That's what's going on. It's, it's chaos. It's a lot of things changing all at once. These are some better terms. Climate chaos, climate breakdown. I hear global weirding. That's a, that's a pretty good one. Um, here. So the last couple of years, I understand we've, we've been a little preoccupied. Uh, we had a pandemic to deal with. Uh, we, we might have developed a little crisis fatigue here, but nature didn't stop. The climate kept on changing while we weren't paying attention. So here are some of our accomplishments from the last two years where we were worried about other things. First of all, 2021 fit right in there with the top 10 hottest years ever recorded on the planet. It was the sixth hottest year ever recorded. The last 10 have been the top 10. We had the hottest temperature ever recorded on the planet in human existence. It was in California. It was 131 degrees Fahrenheit. That was last year. Um, we had these insane wildfires out west. Uh, as you may have read, that burned 5 million acres. That's the entire surface area of Connecticut, Delaware, and Rhode Island put together. My wife took this picture in San Francisco at noon, this is noon during those wildfires, the air quality 
was four times worse than Beijing. And you couldn't buy masks or, or air purifiers. They'd been sold out long before you got there. Um, so if you look at the trend of these wildfires, you can see that it's, for the last 40 years, it's almost doubled. Um, and I did a CBS Sunday Morning story about this and interviewed the head of CAL FIRE. That's the Californian Fire, Wildfire and Forestry Department. And <clears throat> I said, boy, I bet you're glad that season is over. You know, the Paradise Fire and all those horrific fires. And I said, internally at CAL FIRE, you guys must be like, now we're ready to get back to normal. He looked at me over the Zoom. He's like, what are you talking about? That is normal. That's the baseline for what's coming. He said, we are expecting that graph to keep right on going up. Kind of terrifying. Uh, I live in Connecticut where we had hazy, plumy skies from the California wildfires 3,000 miles away. I mean, the smoke reached across the entire country. And it wasn't just us. This is the Australian fires you heard about, wiped out a billion koala bears. Um, and even Siberia? What? The frozen wasteland of Siberia caught on fire. And not only that, they had heat waves in Siberia of 118 degrees. This is one of the freakish things about the changing climate is it's changing faster the farther north you go. So Alaska's temperatures are rising faster in the winter than Madison, Wisconsin, which is rising faster than Chicago. So we also, uh, in 2020, had a new record for the most hurricanes. As you may know, they name hurricanes alphabetically after boys' and girls' names. That was the year they got to the end of the alphabet, and the season wasn't over. They had to start using Greek letters to name the hurricanes because they'd run out of letters. So you might remember this from your school days. This is the water cycle. Um, the, as the ocean warms, it the water evaporates, condenses into clouds and rains back onto the ground. The water runs down the land back into the oceans, and the cycle repeats. Well, here's the kicker. Of all the heat trapped by that shell around the planet, 93% of it goes into the oceans. So that's a problem, because the oceans take a long time to change temperatures. Like turning a battleship around. I mean, if we stopped burning fossil fuels today, it would take 100 years or more. Your grandchildren would be our age before that, the heat of the ocean starts to drop. So the water warms up. That means more evaporation. That means more rain. So the rains are going nuts. This is a graph of the last 100 years of intense rainstorms in the United States. And as you can see, they're really becoming a problem. And not just here. China, West Africa, Australia, Indonesia. This is Washington, D.C. in 2019. They had six inches in two hours of rain. You, this is last year in Michigan. Remember, the dams broke, flooded out entire towns. Nebraska, two-thirds of Nebraska counties declared federal flood emergencies. Two-thirds. That's where we grow our food. This was the situation 20 million acres that they just couldn't plant. So you're like, hmm, why are my groceries more expensive? Now you know. You might be like, well, that's Nebraska. <laughs> we live in Cleveland. No, now you know. It affects us all. Um, there are some absolutely delicious stories embedded in all this depressing stuff. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the Noah's Ark replica in Kentucky. And two years ago, ladies and gentlemen, they filed a $1 million flood insurance claim 
I'll let you think about that for a minute. They filed a flood claim with their insurance company, took them to court, the Noah's Ark replica. Uh, these hurricanes might not be getting more frequent, that science is still out, but it is clear that they are getting bigger and deadlier. This was Katrina. As you know, it was $125 billion of damage, killed 1,800 people. Uh, Hurricane Sandy more recently, this one hit us where I live in Connecticut. Um, it was the biggest hurricane ever measured, 1,000 miles across, and just a disaster. We left power, we lost power for six days. I had three little kids, and you know that means we lose all the food in the fridge. Uh, there's no electricity, there's no heat. Of course, there's no internet. Dad! You know, so for the first hour, it was like, well, kids, let's find out what it was like to live in the olden days. And we lit candles, and we played cards, and then 20 minutes had gone by. Now what? It was, it was stressful. Uh, this was New York City during Hurricane Sandy. The, the subways filled to the roof, like you couldn't ride the subway cars because the tunnels were flooded. So it used to be that that would be considered a freak storm. You'd get that once every 500 years. However, by 2017, the likelihood of a storm of that size had shrunk to every 25 years. <coughs> and by 2030, they're saying, we can expect a storm like that about every five years, give or take. So you add all this gloomy stuff together, all the heat, the drought, the fires, the flooding, the mudslides, and, and so on, and you see a general graph. These are all disasters that cost a billion dollars or more, this graph right here. So there is something going on. Uh, people ask me often, you know, what about climate deniers? What do I say to a climate denier? I don't actually think they exist anymore, to be honest. I think the number of people who are going to look out the window and say, oh, no, this is exactly like it was in 1980, I think the numbers of those people are vanishingly small. I don't think anyone with a straight face can look at the weather, the headlines, that graph, and say nothing's changed. What you do have are people who say, okay, yeah, the weather changes, but it's always been changing. There are cycles, there are rises and falls, and this has nothing to do with pollution. This has nothing to do with greenhouse gases. This is just one of nature's cycles. So the Yale Climate Center does a poll twice a year of Americans, and they ask what our attitudes are, and they track this kind of belief. And in the most recent one in December, 29% of Americans said, no, this is not man-made. This is a natural cycle. That's the lowest number they've ever had in the sample. It drops 5% every time they do the poll. And in case you're like, 29%, that's a lot. No, that's not a lot. Let me remind you that 20% of us think that aliens walk among us. So I think 29%, we're doing okay. Anytime you can get Americans more than 50% to agree on anything, you're doing all right. So, but for the purposes of this talk, and for the purposes of the book, it doesn't matter whether you believe it's man-made or a natural cycle. It makes no difference. The fact is things are changing, and you've got to take some preparation steps. So this is what the book is. It's where to live, what to build, what to grow, where to invest, how to insure, how to protect your children. And then there's individual chapters for flood, heat waves, drought, tornadoes, wildfires, and so on, <laughs> and social unrest. You should have you should have heard the conversation I had with my editor about whether to include a gun chapter. Um, but the first chapter is called Acclimating to Climate Change. And this one I learned as much for myself as I did for the reader 
Um, I will be frank, I wrote this book when I had eco-despair, or climate melancholia, as they call it, a few years ago. Um, this was the time when it seemed like the problem was getting worse, and no one was doing anything. Um, the United States had pulled out of the Paris Agreement. Uh, the words climate change were deleted from every federal website. Deleted. It just seemed like nobody cared. And I learned, so, so by the way, I'm not an expert on any of those topics. Insurance, investment, none of it. This entire book was a reporting job. So this was interviewing the world's experts and synthesizing the information into a single book. And what I learned by talking to five ecotherapists, yes, that's a new field, is that depression is not defined as your situation is terrible. Depression is your situation is terrible and you feel helpless to change it. That's depression. Learned helplessness, the feeling that you have no control. So there are three kinds of eco-anxiety. One is post-traumatic stress. This is what happened after Katrina, where a year later, one in five people were still reporting sleeplessness, depression, uh, otherwise known as post-traumatic stress. Suicidal thoughts doubled in these people. Then there is pre-traumatic stress. This is children who can't sleep at night because they think the world is ending. This is people who are depressed about the way things are going, but it hasn't happened yet. And then there's this word I'd never heard before, solastalgia. It's kind of like nostalgia, but it's longing for a place that you're still in, but from a different time. So it's for longing for the way a place used to be. We in Cleveland, that we used to have longer period of colorful leaves in the fall. We used to have a longer springtime. Um, these things have changed, so we miss the way it used to be. So how do you fight any kind of depression? Through giving yourself a sense of control and taking actions. So uh, this is true of any kind of depression. So in the case of climate change, anything you can do to mitigate, to lower your, your carbon footprint, group therapy, starting a campaign, joining a political or advocacy group. Um, there's a lot of really cool stress relief things I learned talking to these therapists. Um, there's one that I've adopted myself, which is fantastic. This has been scientifically proved. They did studies of this with a thousand military members where they were having mental health issues. What you do is at four o'clock every day, you're allowed to wallow. You're allowed to feel sorry for yourself and mope and drink and feel rotten about everything in your life that's wrong. But the rest of the day, you have to say, uh-uh, not gonna think like that. That's for tomorrow at four. And it genuinely works. It genuinely works. It means 23 hours a day, you're not allowing yourself to, and it's not really a fake out because you're, you're still gonna worry, but it's at a limited confined time. So because this entire book is about taking action, taking steps to prepare yourself, make yourself more resilient, it has been called, ladies and gentlemen, the first uplifting book on climate change. It was my editor who said that. Um, She's totally unbiased. All right, so I'm gonna give you a quick capsule uh, tour through some of the best chapters. The one that I think that got the most attention is the where to live chapter. Not everybody obviously can afford to pick up and move to a new place, but 40 million Americans move every year for all kinds of reasons. They, new relationship, ending relationship, new job, old job, getting out of the military or school, new whatever, people move. The bad news is there's really no place in the United States that is completely free of climate disaster problems. 
Um, but the general guideline is this. You want to be north far enough to escape the heat and the mosquitoes. You want to be west far enough to avoid the rising sea levels and the hurricanes. You want to be east far enough to avoid the wildfires and the droughts. Now, the drought is not something people talk about a lot. It's not very telegenic. You don't, you know, you don't get ratings, Nielsen ratings, by putting a, a shot of a muddy lake on TV. That's not like a wildfire. Um, but it's a big deal. I mean, we, first of all, let's, let's start at the beginning. Let's start with the, with the sea level rise. This is a problem you don't have here in Cleveland. This is for coastal America. There's this cool website called Surging Seas where you can plug in any address and see exactly what's going to happen to it as the sea level rises. Now, a lot of people say, oh, the IPCC, the United Nations, says sea level is supposed to rise between six and seven feet in the next 70 years. Who cares about six feet? Well, for every one foot the water level goes up, it goes 300 feet in. So into our basements and our businesses and our streets. So every time you think about a foot of up, you gotta think 300 feet in. This is where I live, this is Westport, Connecticut. I'm gonna drag the slider at the left, which is number of feet, and you can see what's going to happen to the water coming inland, eating away at Connecticut and my house. <laughs> um, this is Boston. They've got an even more dire situation. It's a low-lying city. It's right at sea level. They had a competition recently uh, that any citizen could enter about what do we do about that in Boston? And they had some really cool designs, things like floating parks, parks that were designed to float when the water level gets high, or submersible parks that are meant to be flooded and then dried out, but because they're filled with plants, marshy plants that love water, they survive those things. The real problem, you guys, is Miami. Miami is not only at sea level, but it is porous ground. So the water, you can't build a seawall around Miami because the water is coming up from underneath you. So this is Miami in the next 60 years. Miami is going away, and so is much of South Florida. If I were you, I would not be buying real estate in Miami right about now. They have already what's called sunny day flooding. This is this bizarre thing where it hasn't rained and the streets are flooded. It's because they have built flood grates, water drains, in all the streets. It, they were designed to let water out. <laughs> but water is pouring in from the flood grates into the city streets. This guy... He's paying the meter for his submarine, I guess. I um, so I was mentioning about drought. Uh, this is another part of climate change that doesn't get the play that wildfires and hurricanes do, but we got to talk about it. We got to drink. We need fresh water. Where do mo those of us who didn't have the foresight to live near the Great Lakes, where do people get their water in this country? Three sources. First of all, snowpack. That's accumulated winter snow that melts through the summer and the spring. The water runs down, trickles down into our reservoirs, and we drink it. Well, something's happening to the snowpack. The winters are shorter, so not as much snow gathers there. Here's a comparison of now versus 10 years ago. This is the Sierra Nevadas out in California. You can see that the snowpack taken at the same spot, the same time of year, is much, much smaller. And they're saying by 2080, there will be none at all. No more snow in the mountains. 
The other problem is spring is coming earlier now. So what snow there is starts melting and running down sooner, so it runs down earlier in our year, and we don't have that water. The second source is reservoirs. You build a dam, the water piles up behind us, and we get water from that. Um, all the US major reservoirs are at historic low levels, including this one. This is Lake Mead, formed by the Hoover Dam. So this is in Nevada. 25 million people get their water from Lake Mead, and that thing is less than a third full. In the last 10, uh, 20 years, it's dropped 117 feet. That's what the bathtub ring you're looking at is. That's where the water's supposed to be. That's where it was for decades. In another couple of years, they will no longer be able to get hydroelectric power from the Hoover Dam. And a few years after that, if this continues, they won't get water from it either. Um, the third source of water is aquifers. These are these giant underground storehouses of water that we pump water up from and we drink. Um, two, two, 21 of the 37 biggest aquifers on the planet have passed the tipping point, which means we are taking water out of them faster than nature can replenish them. So past that tipping point, it's onward down to zero. So we really need to start thinking about drinking water. Um, this is some more headlines about the current drought in the western half of the United States. It has not been this dry in 12,000 years, 1,200 years. Uh, Charlemagne was crowned Holy Roman Emperor the last time this continent was this dry. So, all right, so given all that depressing stuff, where can you go that will protect you from the wildfires, the sea level rise, the drinking water issue, the hurricanes, the tornadoes? I think you see where this is going. You guys knew what you were doing. You want to be in Cleveland. No, no, no. <laughs> no, you want to be around the Great Lakes. You want to be above the 42nd parallel where it's not going to get so hot in the summer where you're away from the wildfires, the sea level rise, the tornadoes and the hurricanes, and where you have a perpetual source of fresh drinking water. That's the Great Lakes. So in the book, I went through, uh, I, I, I highlighted 15 example cities chosen not just for their climate, climate haven characteristics, but also like, are they good places to live? What's the quality of life? What's the cost of living? Cleveland, it turns out, has world-class museums, major sports teams. Um, a lot of the experts I talked to says, said, don't forget in your chapter on where to live about medical facilities. Because climate changing means more people sick from new things in more ways. And you're going to need hospitals. I think there's some nearby. Uh, the airport's 15 minutes away, 18 city parks, eight of them on the lakefront. And the cost of living, oh my gosh, $1 in New York buys you $2.71 here. Can you imagine the housing? You, well you know the housing you can buy. I live out by New York. Um, so some other, uh, some other great cities to think of. There are all these great old Rust Belt cities with a lot of room to grow, a lot of space to absorb incoming citizens, um, and a low cost of living. Madison, Wisconsin keeps coming up over and over again. Again, they have five lakes, and they keep winning. Number one, fittest city in America, nicest city in America, most caring, most bike-friendly, best to raise a family in, uh, best quality of life. And one of the reasons is that Madison, which is the capital of Wisconsin, has a law that you can't build any building taller than the state capitol building. So it will never become, you know, a concrete jungle. Actually, what the law actually says 
is you can't build any building that would block the view of the Capitol Dome. So it's even more restricted than that. Um, Burlington, Vermont, it feels like a seaside town because it's on this 500-mile lake, Lake Burlington, uh, uh, Lake Champlain. Um, so you get the, the pleasures of a seaside town, but there's no sea level rise and there's no hurricanes. So uh, you get low obesity, highly educated public, very low crime rate, and excellent ice cream. Uh, Buffalo comes up a lot. It's right on Lake Erie. Fantastic medical facilities, really cheap land, and excellent chicken wings. Um, so those are some ideas for you. Um, there was a, a conversation I had with my editor about whether to include a chapter on, uh, oops, on where to uh, invest. The question was, is it a little crass to talk about how to make money from the end of the world? And I talked to a bunch of investment counselors, and they said, you should include this chapter. Because every time somebody makes an investment in a green company, in a company that's trying to lower their emissions or lower the world's emissions, you are, in effect, helping the whole planet. So you're doing good while you're making good. Uh, and in any case, it's a good bet to invest in these companies. This is no longer an investment you're making because you, you want to do something good in the world. You can be venal as sin and still be in making these investments. The bottom line is the energy stocks in the last 10 years. They have dropped. The top line is what the stock market as a whole has done. In fact, if you drill in, you'll see that if you'd invested in clean energy stocks in the last five years, you'd be up 60% right now. If you'd put the same $1,000 in fossil fuel stocks, BP and so on, you'd be down 12%. So fossil fuel stocks are a losing bet. So the question is, fine, where should I put my money where I can take advantage of this multi-trillion dollar transfer of money from this carbon economy to the decarbonized economy that's lying ahead. The first thought might be, well, solar panels, of course. Everybody's going to want to put up solar panels. This one is proposed for Australia. It'll be the biggest one in the world. It's the same size as 20,000 football fields. Um, it turns out that solar is doing incredibly well. Solar capacity in this country has skyrocketed in a way that scientists and experts of 15 years ago thought would not happen for another 100 years. This blew everybody away. In fact, this, these uh, numbers, ladies and gentlemen, are two days old. Last year, this is a graph of all the new electric capacity we built in this country. 77% is solar and wind. How much of it was coal? None. Coal is dead in this country. There are zero new coal plants planned to be built, and they're taking offline six or seven every single year. Um, in fact, I love this slide so much. This is the Kentucky Coal Mining Museum. Two years ago, they installed solar panels on their rooftop. They are saving $10,000 a year <laughs> with their solar panels. The reason coal is going away is because of this graph, this astonishing graph. In 2020, the line of renewable power and coal power crossed for the first time in human history. That is, we started generating more power from renewables than from coal. And that, those lines are going to keep on crossing. Um, and this is the reason why. This is the cost of solar panels. 
they have been plummeting. They are so, so cheap. It's because the Chinese manufacturing industry is pumping out solar panel gear as a commodity. It's a race to the bottom. It's who can make it cheapest and ship it around the world because there's a big market for them. That's what makes it a bad investment. You don't want to be an invest in, investor in something that's a race to the bottom. Same thing with wind. Wind is also on a gigantic climbing path in this country. And again, it's because the costs are getting cheaper and cheaper because the Chinese factories are putting out wind turbines at fantastically low costs. Okay, so if you can't invest in solar and wind, where are you supposed to put your money? Well, here's the thing. It turns out that 38 states in this country have mandated that they must get their power by a certain year from renewable energy, like solar, wind, and nuclear. So in New York and California, they have to get 50% of all their electricity seven years from now. So where are they going to get it? They buy it from utility companies. So the utility companies who are smart enough to think ahead are like, maybe we should start figuring out how to get solar and wind power. Because think, think of it as a business person, right? Let's say I'm the utility. Right now, to supply you with power, I have to buy raw materials, coal or oil. I have to refine it. I have to purify it. I have to obey government regulations. Then I sell it to you. Now, take the future where I don't have any raw materials. The wind is free. The sun is free. No processing. No regulations. Free emissions-free power forever. And then I sell it to you. So my costs have gone away, but do you think I'm going to charge you any less? Of course not. So think like a business person. Lower costs, same revenue, profit. So if I were you, I would invest in companies like NextEra and Excel Energy that are making big investments in solar and wind because they know they have waiting customers. Oh, really? OK, I better start flipping through these fast. Um, you might think of electric cars as a good investment, since literally every car company on Earth has announced they're moving to electric cars, including, to my astonishment, General Motors, which I always thought of as a large, slow-moving, in bed with the oil companies. No, they announced that within 13 years, they will no longer make gas cars. General Motors! How is that possible? And it's not because they, they care for us and they want the Earth to be a better place, or not solely because of that. It's because all their customers are banning gas cars. You will no longer be able to sell gas cars in any of these countries or states by 2030 or 2040. That's soon. So if these car companies want to be able to sell cars anywhere, they're going to have to move to electric. So how can you, the investor, take advantage of this? Well, what do all the electric car companies need? Batteries no matter which company. So think upstream from the individual car companies. They all need batteries. There's only four companies in the world that make them. They're all in Asia, Panasonic, Amperex, Samsung, and LG Chemical. They all are trading stocks. Or you can buy the components, the capacitors, the wires, the cables. Or think even farther upstream, lithium. That's what you make lithium-ion batteries from, lithium. There are companies that mine lithium. United States and, uh, and Chile. Um, so they're going to need lithium. A lot of people ask, but wait a minute, aren't, isn't this just replacing oil-producing countries with lithium-producing countries? Yes, that's true. But please remember that lithium-ion batteries are a temporary battery chemistry. Remember when it used to be NICAD, nickel-cadmium? No, we keep finding better chemistries. Lithium-ion is only right now. Ten years from now, it'll be something else. Um, here's some other good sector bets to think about. We've talked about water. 
There are ETFs and mutual funds that invest in desalination and water purification and shipping water to where it's needed. You can invest in those. At the upper right, I don't know if you can see this very well, but those of you who are into gardening know that on the back of every pack of seeds is the USDA zone chart. This is a, a map that tells you, it puts stripes across the country by, by temperateness and tells you where you can plant this variety of seeds. So look at the graphs in the upper right. The zones in the US, newest USDA maps have shifted to the north. The farming zones, the agricultural zones, are shifting north as the earth warms. That means the traditional farming places, the breadbasket of the country, they are having a harder time growing crops. They will need to invest in new seed breeds that are designed to be hardy in these uh, conditions like Syngenta and Monsanto. And you can also think about the new farms that are going to arise when we set up new farms farther north. They're going to need to buy farm equipment. So Navistar and John Deere. Um, this next topic, <laughs> my wife uh, jokes, she makes total fun of me. She, she says that I could stand at a cocktail party and talk for two hours without stopping about the National Flood Insurance Program. Uh, I'm a real gas, uh, let me tell you. Um, it, it seems like it's going to be the most boring topic in the whole book. I found it literally the most interesting. So first of all, you all have homeowner's insurance, presumably. Uh, the first lesson is, you know, 15 minutes, you know, could change your, you know, could save you 15% or more. 15 minutes is not enough anymore. You need to look at your policy. Look at your declarations page, probably for the first time in years. You probably got that insurance way before these problems happened. You probably want the cheapest thing you could get. Your circumstances have changed. In particular, we got to talk about flooding. Look at this graph of insurance flood claims and their size in the United States just in the last 10 years. Flooding is skyrocketing in this country, and I hope this is not news to any of you here. Homeowners insurance doesn't cover flooding. You, you guys are covered with fire and windstorms and theft, but if you flood, the insurance company does not have your back. That started back in 1992 when Hurricane Andrew wiped out Florida and all the insurance companies lost their shirts. So Allstate and, and um, Nationwide, all the insurance companies got out of the flood insurance business because there's no money in it. Like, we'll lose money if we give people. So here's why, and you might be thinking, well, I live in Ohio, we're not on a coast, we don't have sea level rise. Here's the astonishing thing. Look at the top 10 states filed by the, colored by the number of federal flood disasters they apply for reimbursement for each year. Of the 10 states, only two of them are on the coast. The rest are all inland. And the number one most flooded state in the nation, Arkansas. What the heck? That's not on the ocean. Well, it's because of that pattern I described earlier where the drought makes the, the ground hard and dry, and then you get these freak rains, and the rain has nowhere to soak in, so it just runs along the surface into your homes and the businesses. So flood insurance is becoming a thing for everyone. In the absence of commercial flood insurance companies, the government stepped in. In the 70s, they offered the National Flood Insurance Program, and this is the company that provides 95% of all flood insurance in America. They're horribly in debt, $25 billion in debt, because of all the hurricanes lately. And 
they, okay, this is where it gets super in the weeds and super interesting. So they calculate your insurance rate for flooding, not based on the current risk or the future risk. They don't look at that. They only look at historical risk. So all of a sudden, they're out of date. They also only look at like your zip code. They don't look to your property to calculate your rate. Crazy. And the other thing is, unlike car insurance, if you file a claim, they don't raise your rates. Isn't that nice of Congress? They don't raise it. There is a house in Texas that has been flooded 13 times since 1980. They have received $3.5 million from the government. They have never had their rates go up. It's so stupid. So the people who run this thing, um, they keep begging Congress, can we please make this work like a regular insurance company? Like your rates go up if you are in, at low level and you're, you're at high risk. And there's this program called Risk Rating 2.0. It was supposed to happen two Octobers ago. Then it was supposed to happen this last October. And it keeps not happening because Congress won't vote for it. Because think about it. You're a congressperson. You have two kind of constituents that would be affected by this. First, there's the people whose rates would suddenly jump up because they've been paying too little all this time. They won't reelect you. You're the one who made my rates go up. And the other half are people whose rates will suddenly go down because they were overrated all this time. They won't vote for you. You're the one who suckered me all these years into paying way too much. So it's never going to pass. It's just a disaster. So people wonder what's going to happen to insurance. Like right now, an insurance company, they're pulling out of fire insurance in California for obvious reasons. All they can do to stay in business is drop customers, and they're doing that in California by the hundreds of thousands. They can raise rates, and they're doing that, or they can get out of the state. They can just leave the business. And there's no end to this in sight. One of my experts said, the future of insurance is a luxury for rich people. It's not going to be something that everybody has, because everybody won't be able to afford it. All right, so the last quick topic is, I'm not going to go into the individual chapters on flood and fire and heat wave, but there is a general chapter that gives you just a few simple and free suggestions for making yourself more resilient. First is an app, believe it or not. It's made by the Red Cross. It's free. You can download it right now in your seats. It's very cool. All you do is you put in your address, your children's address, your grandchildren's address, and then you, you file the app away, you forget about it. If any disaster ever happens, either a weather disaster or a chemical spill or a nuclear leak, this thing comes to life, chirping and vibrating in your pocket to get your attention. Because the saddest thing is those headlines about people who died in a wildfire or hurricane because they never found out. They, they were sleeping in their house and they got killed. That's, that would be the worst. Um, I also recommend the making of a go bag. This is a, a backpack that you keep in the front closet with everything you would need to survive outside the house for a couple days. So some energy bars, first aid kit, flashlight, copies of your most important documents, your license, some cash. And the idea here is if there's something bearing down on you, you want to be able to jump in the car and get. You don't want to waste time locked in your house looking for things you want to take with you. You want to have that ready. These go bags, they all have them in California. I mean, everyone there, because they, they have the worst of everything. They have, wildfires and sea level rise and earthquakes, and, you know, and beetles. Um, so I also recommend that you, uh, you tape a note to the go bag listing things that you can't pack in advance, the five minutes worth of stuff like your medicines, your phone charger, your passport, things you need to grab on the way out. Um, one thing that all disasters have in common 
is losing drinking water. Um, usually what we do is we fill up the bathtub or we run to the grocery where we find that the drinking water has long since been sold out. You actually have a lot of clean drinking water in the walls of your house already. You have a water heater with 40 or 80 gallons of clean fluoridated water ready to go. You turn off the heat, you open the input at the top and put a bucket down below, let the water flow out. Presto, clean drinking water. This came from my water heater. Um, you have toilets, I hope. Um, this contains three or four gallons of drinking water. I don't, I don't mean the bowl, unless you're a dog. I'm, I'm talking about the tank, of course. Um, and if you have multiple stories in your house, you have water in the pipes. So turn off the in intake, and then open the faucets on the top floor to let water uh, air come in, and then open the, the taps down below. You got water flowing out. Um, another thing that happens a lot is um, uh, power failures happens no matter what kind of disaster it is. The United States is the number one most power failure developing nation, uh, developed nation in the world. We have more power failures than anyone. Um, and so there's not really a lot you can do about this uh, other than get yourself a generator. It doesn't have to be expensive. The one on the left costs 15 bucks. Uh, it's a hand-cranked generator. So it's only enough power for your phone and your tablet, um, but it's got a flashlight, it's got an emergency radio. For 250 bucks, you can go to Home Depot and get one of those one of those kind of generators, uh, or there's a quieter, nicer, less smelly kind called an inverter that's like 800 bucks. Or if you have the money, you can get a standby generator. That's the kind that's permanently installed beside your house that kicks on automatically uh, when the power goes out. After Hurricane Sandy, what we did is we got one of those, but a small one. All it covers is the kitchen and one bedroom. But I'm telling you, if I'd had that much, it would have been a much easier hurricane to, to ride out. Um, another thing happens when the electricity goes out, the cell phone towers go out because they're powered by electricity. So I recommend that every family have a conversation. What would we do if we were separated at the time of a disaster and we couldn't call each other? Let's agree on a meeting place. One inside the house, like away from windows in case it's a storm, where we, we know to go, like at the master bedroom closet, whatever. Um, one in the neighborhood, like across the street, if we can't get into our house. And one in town, if they put the yellow do not cross line across your whole street. Where would we meet? The library, the Costco, whatever it is. Um, and now I've got a special, just for you Ohioans, <laughs> something you probably haven't been thinking about. Ever since the winter started getting shorter, the ticks are not dying off over the winter. They are coming north. The number of diseases that they carry is going up and up and up. The number of reported cases, the CDC tracks this stuff, and they have 30,000 cases. You can see on the graph from 2014, which is their most recent survey, that Ohio is starting to get the colored dots. And they calculate that only 10% of people who have Lyme disease actually know it and report it. So the number is more like 300,000 a year. You don't want Lyme disease. It's, it's an awful disease. It's very vague. The symptoms are hard to pin down. There's no good test for it. There's no good treatment for it unless you get antibiotics right at the beginning. Um, and the, you know, it's hard to, you know, doctors don't believe you. It's very vague. It comes and goes. You really don't want it. But I talked to the United States leading tick expert, this fantastic guy at the University of Rhode Island. All he does all his life is go out and collect ticks. He wears special clothing. He has a, a pillowcase that he scoops through the underbrush. I got one! Uh, that's all the guy does. 
And he told me the most interesting stuff about ticks. This is second only to insurance in getting me excited. Um, he says that, um, you know, people say, oh, I don't want to go for a walk because those ticks up in the trees, they're waiting for me to pass, and then they jump down. No, that's not how it works. First of all, most ticks don't carry disease at all. So just because you have a tick bite doesn't mean you got Lyme disease. Second of all, um, if you do get it and you can diagnose it early, antibiotics kick it out of you forever. Ticks can't fly and they can't jump. They can't even see. Ticks don't have eyes. So the way it works is they stand on their little hind legs on the underbrush, waving their front legs, waiting for something to walk by, and then they grab on it. Um, they are brought to us, by the way, by deer. The explosion of the warm weather, the short winters, mean an explosion of deer with no natural predators, and they bring ticks into new places and new states. Um, the antidote is DEET. It's bug spray. DEET is a very safe chemical, studied to death. It's not a poison. It doesn't make anybody sick. It just smells bad to the bugs. That's all it is. Spray your legs, spray your cuffs, your neck. You're good to go. Um, also, this is really cool. Ticks require humidity to live. If the humidity drops below 82%, they shrivel up and die. So if you have a home with a patio or something and you're worried about ticks, nine feet of lawn, gravel, wood chips, whatever it is, between you and the forest or the bushes means you are safe from ticks. Because to them, that's like Death Valley. They cannot cross nine feet of sun. They will dry up and die. Um, it also means that when you get in from a hike, here's what you do. You take off your clothes. You stuff them in the dryer on high for 10 minutes. That kills, dries out whatever's on them. And while you're standing there naked, you check yourself out. You look at your the hairy bits and the behind the knees, and you look for ticks. Because here's something else. You can't get Lyme disease unless a tick has been on you for at least 36 hours. If you can catch it before a day and a half, you're, you're good. It has to be attached to you that long. So check yourself out when you get home. And if you see one, the internet says, light a candle, light a match, put Vaseline on it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, in this one instance, the internet has misinformation. Um, no, what you do is you grab it with tweezers and pluck it out by the head. And then you put it in a Ziploc and you mail it to the University of Rhode Island guy. Seriously, he wants you to send him the ticks so he can analyze what kind they are, whether they had Lyme disease, stuff like that. So I promised you there would be a reassuring part at the end. Here it is. It's the last chapter of the book. It's called Where to Find Hope. It would have been a much shorter chapter uh, when I wrote the book two years ago. It was a very dark time. Um, it didn't seem like anybody cared. It seemed like the government wasn't doing anything about it. Um, I don't know what your politics are. I don't care who you voted for. But one thing you can't deny is that somehow we elected a president who never stops talking about climate change. Okay, And the, the, his master plan is in the box there to cut emissions in half in this country by 2030. Probably not going to happen to that extent because he has to get everything through Congress. But all these other headlines are things that already have happened. He has already uh, raised the minimum miles per gallon rating for cars. He has already passed $5 billion to build a nationwide network of electric car charging units. Um, my dad's like, don't talk about politics. These are business people. No, this is, I'm, just, I'm just a reporter, you guys. This is all true. And if it helps it go down easier, it means jobs, OK?
As we speak, there are more jobs in the solar industry than in the entire coal industry. Already, there are more jobs in the decarbonization process. I promise you. This also cheered me up. Even though the US was out of the Paris Agreement, half the states vowed to stay in it. They kept on working toward those emissions goals, even though the United States as a country had pulled out. So this should give you some hope. These are our greenhouse gases over the last few years. The United States' emissions are going way down. Some of it is because of these steps we're taking. A lot of it is because we now burn natural gas more than we burn coal. And coal is really dirty. The natural gas is dirty, but not quite as bad. So that's helpful. Also, um, there are all these movements to build the ultimate carbon removal systems, which are trees. There are programs to, build, to plant a billion trees, six billion trees, a trillion trees. I mean, there are carbon removal factories. I'm doing a story on this for Sunday morning right now. There, there are 17 of these plants already up and running, and they, they literally suck carbon dioxide out of the air. And then they either pump it into the ground, or I kid you not, they turn it into carbonated beverages. It's carbon dioxide bubbles. That's what that is. Um, they, these things work. And they are, the UN considers them essential to save the planet. But right now, it's, it's not cost effective. It still costs too much per ton. But trees do it for free. Um, all over the world, coal is being phased out, not just the United States. A lot of people say, yeah, but what about China? Why should we make any changes to our system when China is the biggest polluter in the world? Um, well, it's making changes too. I will admit that they are still running off a lot of coal because China is practically made of coal. So they are actually building new coal plants as we speak, but they are also the number one solar power country in the world. They joined the Paris Accord from the very beginning and doubled down last year. Um, they also, the president has promised that the nation will be carbon neutral by 2030, uh, sorry, 2060, 2060. We haven't even said that. China says they're gonna do that. They, if you look at India and China from the air, from the NASA satellites, you will see these gigantic countries greening. More of what they're seeing is green or as time goes by. That's hopeful. And China has promised to stop building coal plants for other countries. They used to have clients all over the world. Now they're only going to build them for China. And by the way, the story with China is an up-and-coming middle class, right? Poorer people getting richer. They don't want to raise their children in disgusting, filthy air either. They are pushing back on coal already. They don't like breathing that air. So one more thing on power. We haven't talked about nuclear. Most people are afraid of nuclear because meltdowns and danger. There are at least two new forms of nuclear that are underway. I'll just touch on them briefly. You can go Google them. One is called traveling wave nuclear. I don't know if you're aware of this, but nuclear power plants use an isotope called U-235. You ever heard of that? It's pretty rare. 99% of all uranium is an isotope called U-238. And when we dig it up, we throw it away. Because we like 235. That's what our current plants use. Why did the United States settle on 235? Because they could also weaponize it. They could also make bombs with it. Now we don't care so much about that. Now we just want uranium that won't melt down and, and won't blow up. So U-238 plants are already up and running in demos. 
Thorium is another element you can use that's not uranium at all. This too cannot melt down, can't be used in, um, uh, can't be used as weapons, and there's no cooling lakes required for it, so they can build these things anywhere, right next to a city. Uh, super cool. Another huge uh, uh, source of hope is that corporations, which used to be among the biggest polluters on the planet, are now beginning to realize that it's not cool to pollute, that investors and customers and even their employees are fighting them to put out less emissions and do something about the problem. Two years ago, you guys, Amazon had no climate program and it was the employees who rose up in a mutiny that made Jeff Bezos make some changes. Now they're spending $10 billion on climate science, building 15 huge solar and wind farms. They're replacing all their vans with electric vans and so on. Microsoft has said that by 2050, they won't just be carbon neutral. They will have removed from the air all the carbon the company has ever pumped out since its founding in 1979. And now you know the two ways they're going to do that. One is trees and one is those carbon removal plants. So whether they can achieve that, I don't know, but they have said they're going to. Um, so there's really two reasons to prepare. One is the obvious situation. 25 million Americans a year get hit by one of these disasters, lose their home, lose their money, get sick. This way you'll be ready. And secondly, you sleep better at night, knowing that you've taken some action to protect yourself against what's coming. So everybody always asks me, is it too late? Will we get there? You know, the UN says it's way too late, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it is too late. But I think we will get there. I think it'll take 70 or 80 years. But I think we will decarbonize. I think we will end burning coal and oil. Um, and the reason I think that is in these pictures. These giant, massive walkouts and demonstrations and marches of young people. These people are going to replace us people. They're going to be the leaders, the CEOs, the engineers who design the new world, and they care. They care a lot. So I believe that as we die off and get replaced by people who began life confronting the climate crisis and wanting to fix it, um, I think the problem will, will not be the, the hellscape that the UN predicts in its worst predictions, but something better. Uh, until then, prepare. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, happy to take any questions you might have. And, uh, and that's my email address. If we don't get to your question, I'm happy to correspond with you. Which you might think, yes. How did I get involved? Wow, I think I've always been worried about this. You know, the climate change thing has been around a long time. The first article about it was in the New York Times in 19, and you want to guess? 1958 was the first mention of the word climate change. So growing up, I was worried about two things. My mom can tell you. I was worried about burning gas and pollution, creating pollution, and I was worried about running out of salt. Give me a break, I was seven. Um, we're not running out of salt, but I was, I was right on the other one. So, and, and I've been, for, for this show I work for, CBS Sunday Morning, I've been doing stories about this issue for years. I think I did my first climate change story in 2008 or something like that. Uh, I've done stories on fracking and 
the, pl the plastics problem. So it's always been sort of in the back of my mind. And um, so when this publisher offered me the chance to, to dive in, I think most people probably know me as an explainer. Like all my life, I've written how-to books and sort of explained technology and science on Nova. And this would be a chance to do both, to write a how-to book that's also an explainer in one. Yes, sir. Say, say it again. The, the... I'll bring a mic to you. Oh, what about those countries? Who are... Yeah, so that's a great question. What, what's a country with plentiful oil supposed to do when that's their major export? So this brings up a very complicated web of conversations and questions about equity and equality. Uh, one thing we didn't really get to is the fact that the, the climate crisis uh, disproportionately affects poorer countries. They tend to be low-lying countries. They're getting flooded. Um, the crops have a harder time growing. So. I, obviously, I, I've spent most of the time thinking about the richer countries, uh, U.S. And, and China and Europe, um, who can afford to make changes like this. So really, this is probably predictable, but I think it's incumbent upon the richer companies to assist the poorer ones. Um, and we're going to have to ultimately leave oil in the ground. We have to. We just have to. It's, just, it's not a political issue. It's a survival issue. Um, I think the numbers are pretty firmly out there for us to see that the current prospect, the current system, can't keep going on like this. So I'm not going to say it won't be hard, but it has to happen. Let me remind you, by the way, there have been other existential threats. Remember the ozone layer? We were also worried about the ozone layer. We're all going to die of skin cancer. We came together as a planet, and we fixed it. I don't know if you've been reading Scientific American. The ozone hole has closed. It took 40 years. The hole has now closed because as nations, we got together and we said, stop putting chlorofluorocarbons in spray cans and refrigerators. And everyone said, but wait a minute. We manufacture refrigerators. Tough. We need to do it. And we did it, and we're somehow still here. So. Yes. Um, is this on? Why did I focus on adaption instead of mitigation? Actually, the embarrassing truth is I didn't. The first draft of the book covered both, and my editor said, we're not publishing a 1,200-page book. So I literally had to cut 600 pages of the book. The answer is we do need to do both as fast and as hard as possible, and the mitigation part of it has already been covered a lot. I think people already know the steps they can take to lower their carbon footprint. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot about mitigation in the book, and there's a 300-page appendix that they put online called How to Make Your Carbon Footprint Smaller that has all the steps you can take. We need to keep doing it. But what I wanted to, to write was something that nobody else was writing. Yes. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit more about wind power in terms of a lot of objections of people living along the coast that 
want the nice view, that don't want all of these, uh, you know, wind turbines, and what we need to do to counteract that if one of the, uh, the options is wind. Yeah, what do we do about people who don't want wind turbines ruining their ocean view? Um, it's a priorities thing, I think. <laughs> First of all, I think they're really cool. I mean, I think they look high-tech and futuristic and neat. And I think every time I look out there, that's oil we're not burning. Um, so I don't know. I, I learned a lot writing the book. Um, one of the things that I learned from the psychologists I interviewed is you can't change anybody's mind with facts of an opinion that wasn't formed by facts in the first place. So every time I would go to a party and say to the turbine denier, you know, you know, 70% of the Earth's oil, da 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 they're closing up. They're entrenching. They don't care what I have to say. You have, if you, if you want to start the conversation about something as deep-seated and emotional as this, you have to start from an emotional place, not with facts and figures. So I've learned that to start a conversation with someone with different views on climate, you have to start with, my kid lies awake at night thinking the world is ending. I'm so distressed. That's an emotional approach. My uncle has a farm in Nebraska that was flooded out. He had no income last year. That's an emotional approach. So anytime, or one of the psychologists put it like this. I love this. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. So if you begin the conversation with something empathetic and caring and emotional rather than statistical, that's the only way you can change a mind. I don't know if that helps or not. I mean, you know where I stand on that issue, but, but I realize that I'm not the homeowner. Okay, one last question. Um, sir. Do I have a take on that? Oh my gosh. First of all, all of the crypto, first of all, this Sunday, this Sunday, turn on CBS and watch CBS Sunday morning. I think it's in the first half hour. I have a seven and a half minute explainer on crypto, cryptocurrency. You will finally understand what it is. So first of all, you've probably heard of Bitcoin. You might have heard of Ethereum. There are 12,000 cryptocurrencies. Those are only two of them. Bitcoin is the one that is a climate disaster. Very complicated, but basically, there's no government involved in these transactions. There's no bank. There's no credit card company. Instead, what there is, is this database of all, every single Bitcoin transaction going on everywhere in the world. This database is secure and tamper-proof and duplicated infinitely, so nobody can hack it, nobody can change it. That's what they call the blockchain. Managing the blockchain requires gigantic rooms of this size filled with computers performing vast amounts of calculations. And they require, they, Bitcoin alone consumes as much energy a year as Argentina. Every Bitcoin transaction releases half a ton of carbon dioxide into the air. Buy a sandwich, half a ton. Buy a ticket, half a ton. It's a nightmare. Uh, and everybody knows it, and everybody's trying to fix it. There are alternative plans to somehow uh, substitute other ways of manufacturing these blockchains than running the big rooms full of computers. Um, none of it's happened yet. 
But in the near term, what I would do is don't use the number one crypto, which is Bitcoin, but use the number two crypto, which is called Ethereum, because they don't use that system. They use a different me method of verifying the blockchain that does not have those devastating, devastating climate ramifications. So anyway, so I'll be here if you want to come up and ask any other questions. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. Also be happy to sign books back there.